Jesus, we are so grateful for your goodness as always. Father, we're so grateful for the cross. That, Father, we'd have no hope and no life if it was not for the cross of Jesus Christ. That we worship you for who you are, but also for what you have done for us. And what you have done for us is you've given your life for us. And so, Father, our worship to you is to give our lives back to you. So, Father, thank you for this sweet moment of just worship via song. And so now as we turn to worship through the teaching of your word, Father, would you speak to us? Would you challenge us? Would you convict us? And would you transform us back into your image? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. You may be seated. Thank you, worship team. Uh, as always. Hey, if you're a guest, we are so grateful that you have chosen to worship with us. My name is Jonathan. I serve as one of the pastors here at New Hope, and you are greeted with a bulletin. And I want to ask everybody to grab that bulletin, because it's going to apply uh, to you just in this next little bit. Before we jump into the message, I want to just kind of give a little bit of an announcement time. Um, and so I want you to grab that bulletin, and you were handed inside that bulletin. There was a there's just a, a, an announcement sheet that is focusing on community groups, and community groups are starting in the next few weeks, and so I just want to spend an opportunity uh, speaking about those for a second. And can I steal your bulletin, Maletti? I walked up here and I realized that I did not have one, so forgive me. Share with your awesome husband or kids, whichever. Hey, but I want to draw your attention to this, and let me tell you a little bit about community groups. And in my message today and in messages in weeks to come, uh, not necessarily sure when we'll unpack this idea a little bit more, but sometime in 2019, we most definitely will, we'll spend a lot more time talking about community and the importance of community and why we changed our names from small groups to community groups. Um, some of you uh, thought, um, rightfully so, that some of the groups are beyond the definition of small, which is, speaks to the health of the groups. Praise God for that. Uh, but that is not why we changed the name, because you're no longer small, that some of your groups are bigger, but because of the emphasis that we want to put on community and the importance of relationships, understanding our new our mission statement for New Hope that we claim is engaging our city with the love of Jesus one relationship at, the at a time. And we're going to spend some time talking about that. But here are our community groups um, that are uh, active and that are going. Let me say a couple of things before I introduce these groups to you. Is in past, we have done a few things at this moment. Usually, at each season when we introduce community groups, we give you an opportunity to sign up for those groups by filling out something we have taken that away. So I want to make you aware, you aware that we do not have a physical sign-up for groups. Well, how then do I become a part of a group? Great question. Um, we have given you the contact information. And we, what we're wanting to do is put you in direct contact with the leader um, themselves. And so that way you can work details out. You can find out more information. And so be aware that if you want to sign up for a group, I'm putting the ball in your court, if you will. And so here's that information, um, and here's how to reach out to those uh, community groups. And these are all our community groups, and we hope to have uh, more in the future, but as we grow. But I want to take an opportunity, and I want to invite any community group leader, um, if you are here, that you, if you'd be willing to come stand with me. Now, I had three leaders text me today and say they have the flu. And so uh, we have some leaders that are not here. And so I'm not sure that we have any in the room at the moment in time, apparently, because no one's moving. Renee's moving. Thanks, Renee. Renee. Um, I, I'm calling them up here not to embarrass them, because Renee doesn't get easily embarrassed. Uh, uh, but, but for the purpose of getting, allowing you to see their faces so you kind of know who to talk to. Is Renee really the only one here? 
Um, Reggie, you can come represent your group, buddy. Come here, Reggie. Uh, Reggie, woo, woo, woo. Reggie's coming on up. Um, all right, well, um, we have more community group leaders than this. Um, we will pray for everybody's well-being. Um, so if you're wanting to talk to a community group leader tonight, here's two of them. Oh, I'm one too. So there's three of us. Um, and my wife, she does not like me putting her on the spot. And then Renee's wife, they're, they're part of it as well. And Reggie's wife, they're in the back. And so if you feel more comfortable talking to a lady, um, there are wives you can talk uh, to them. But here's what we'll do in the coming weeks as other community group leaders are here. We will introduce you. We'll find ways for you to get to know them. But we want you to be a part of a community group. It is not, listen to me. Uh, community groups are not just something else you do because that's what we want to be more religious. And so in church, we add things for you to do. Now, listen to me. Is the, you, we gather, rightfully so, every week to worship, to sit under the teaching of God's word, and to have those corporate moments. However, we don't live life together in the hour that we're in this room or in the extra hour that we're downstairs. That's a part of life, sure. But community groups are designed for you to, under, to live life with people, understanding that the Christian life was never intended to be, live alone. The life in general was never intended to be lived alone. And so community groups give you an opportunity for fellowship, for discipleship, to, to, for community, and to live on mission with people. And so I want to I pray for the community group leaders that are here and that are on this list um, and we'll spend more time talking about them, but I want to encourage you greatly, and I'll spend some time in my sermon trying to persuade you on the importance of uh, getting in a community group and how that fits into our mission. But I just want to take an opportunity to just pray for this season, if you will. And so if you're in a community group, and would you just pray alongside for your leader as, or the leaders as you read their names uh, with me as well. But Father, we come to you, and we just want to thank you for this time. Father, we thank you for these leaders. Father, we thank you for their families and the sacrifice they take uh, to prepare a lesson each week, to organize, but then just love on each other and one another's in their community group. And so, Father, as we step into a new season of community groups and of living life together, that, Father, you would uh, bless those times, you work out details that go with it, but also be a time where people can find uh, family, that they can find hospitality, they can find community, they can find people who will bear their burdens with them, that will cry with them, that will laugh with them, that they can lock arms with as they live life together, so to speak. And so, Father, we just pray blessings over them. We pray blessings over uh, this whole semester and what you're going to do through these relationships as people live in community together, as they live, work, and play for your honor and glory. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, guys. Yeah. Appreciate you. Hey, if you have your Bibles, would you go ahead and turn with me to Acts chapter 16? How's everybody doing tonight? Good. All right. How's everybody doing tonight? All right. I don't know why it always takes two times for that, um, but that's okay. Uh, I know you're not prepared. Remember, a sermon is not a monologue, it is a dialogue, meaning feel free to communicate. If you disagree, just save it for an email later, but, in the me but prior to, <laughs> you're going to, but in the meantime, feel free to, to laugh, feel free to say amen every once in a while, feel free to, to at least even nod, just direct, you know, any type of uh, dialogue back and forth with me. 
would be great. Hey, let me just kind of catch you up if you've missed last few weeks as we finish this four-week series that we're simply calling Kingdom Come. As we think about our mission as a church to engage our city with the love of Jesus one relationship at a time. We've been intentional to title it Kingdom Come because of what we prayed earlier in the Lord's Prayer, that we want His kingdom come to to come in our lives, in our church body, and in our city. But we also want to emphasize that when we talk about our mission and we talk about us, that it's not about us. It's about His kingdom, but we are a means in which the kingdom is advanced. And so our church is important to that. And so two weeks ago, we talked about what does it mean to, when we say engage our city, and we were talking about how we engage our city in a lot of different ways, but that's really when we put the the thought forward that we want to see the kingdom of God come in and through our city. And then last week we talked about engaging our city with what? We're engaging our city with the love of Jesus. And we talked about how do we love people. We don't condemn people in their sin, but we don't condone people in their sin because Christ likewise in his holiness and his justness found a way uh, to not condemn us in the person of Jesus Christ, nor condone our rebellion and sinfulness in the person of Jesus Christ, Christ but there's love and grace and mercy in Jesus. And so we, we don't just uh, engage our city with our best love and our niceness, but specifically our city doesn't need us. Our city needs Jesus. But so that's why we, being filled with the Spirit, allow Jesus to engage our city through us. And this week we're going to talk about Uh, engaging our city with the love of Jesus one relationship at a time. We looked at this mission, this idea, this concept, and this really this goal that we laid out two weeks ago that what if God used New Hope to see 1% of Queens, the the 1% of Queens come to know Jesus. That's 24,000 people. And I just said Queens. Many of you live outside of Queens, and I'm well aware of that. But we got to at least start in somewhat of a bite-sized number. And 2.4 million people in Queens, it's not really much of a bite-sized number, but it definitely is compared to all, all the other masses around. And so even if we just said, hey, Queens, we want to see 1% of Queens, that's, tw- that's uh, 24,000 people. What would it look like for us to see 24,000 people come to know Jesus? And so that's a massive concept, and that's a massive idea. And we can look at that goal and go, where do we even begin? Like, like, what do we even do? Like, and, and it can be overwhelming. And so this idea of engaging our city and seeing that type of goal, we begin one relationship at a time. And so Acts chapter 16, we're going to look at a story on seeing how relationships, God uses relationships to advance his kingdom. But in verses 16 through 24, which I'm not going to read to you, but Paul and Silas are, are going about engaging the city. They're, they're living their life they're living on mission, and they encounter um, uh, this girl, this servant girl, who is demon-possessed. And in the, this, this girl is coming around, and she's trying to disrupt uh, Paul and Silas' mission and what they're trying to do. And so eventually, Paul and Silas engage her with the power of the gospel and engage her with the love of Jesus. And they, uh, Jesus heals her. Jesus sets her free. And it's this incredible miracle that takes place. Well, her, uh, her, I guess, owners, a slave girl, so her owners, her leaders, the, those that would profit off of her um, were, not, were not very happy about, what, what, about this freedom that she now had in Jesus. And so because of that, they come after Paul and Silas. And so Paul and Silas are thrown into prison. Now, I want us to, I want us to see a lot of just nuances of this story as we look at it. As you and I engage the city, 
we're going to see God do incredible things, but also we're going to see God do stuff, and we're going to go, how is this a good thing? I want us to look at this idea that Paul and Silas are engaging their city, they're engaging where they're at, they're in Philippi, and God does this miraculous through them, and they get thrown in prison for it. And we're, we're going like, what's the point of this? And it's actually in prison that we come to the story that we're going to focus on tonight. And the first truth that I just want to lay out there as we think about this whole idea of engaging our city with the love of Jesus, every individual relationship at a time or one relationship at a time, I want us to see this. I want us to see that God is sovereign over all of this. We've got to get this concept. God is sovereign over all of this. God is sovereign over our details. Now, we have free will, and I understand that those two things can be hard to think about, but God, in our free will and his sovereignty, they work together. And, and through this, God sovereignly uses the persecution against Paul and Silas to put Paul and Silas exactly where he wants them for the sake of his kingdom being advanced. I want us to get this, that sometimes we find ourselves in situations, we find ourselves in, in relationships or in connections or, in, or in, in prison, if you will, in the negatives and in, in, the, in the worst case scenario. We find ourselves in the positive. We find ourselves in all these situations. I want us to see that God is sovereignly at work as we engage the city. Sometimes we don't have all the details. We don't know God's plan and how it's all going to unfold. And those, that's not our responsibility to answer, but we can have faith and we can have trust that no matter what we encounter through this process, that God is sovereignly in control of all things. And so I want to pick up the story in Acts chapter 16, verse 25. And if you're with me, say amen. Amen. Acts 16, verse 25 says this. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. What, what, a, beautiful, what a beautiful picture. But they understood something. I want you to see, we're already pausing, so you can lift your heads up from the Bible. Sorry. Um, we're already pausing to, to point out this idea of sovereignty. It was the fact that I firmly believe that Paul and Silas understood God's sovereign uh, control amidst their mission, that they're able to be in prison and still worship him. It was, it was because they knew that, hey, we're in prison for a reason, not because someone threw us in prison, but because God has a plan for us while we're here, and so we can worship him. I want us to see this, that even whether we're on this topic of our mission statement, which is what, why I keep pointing over here. If you're new and go, why does he keep pointing at the wall? Because our mission statement's on the wall, and so that's why I keep doing that. But, but whether we're talking about our mission statement or whether we're talking about something else, no matter the situation, we can worship despite our uh, circumstances because we know that God's sovereign and in control. And so they're what? At midnight, singing hymns and praying to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. I want us to see this, that the world is watching. As they're engaging the city with the love of Jesus in this moment in prison, when, the, when, it, the, when it looks like it'd be a moment where they would not praise God, they would not worship God, the world is watching. And the world is watching uh, so the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. God's sovereign activity going on in this. And immediately all the doors were open and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. Now understand... If you're going, well, why would he do that? You've got to understand that in Roman culture, that a jailer, a soldier who's been placed uh, in authority over prisoners, if the prisoners escape, you pay that with your life. Like, it is upon your life to keep prisoners. And so assuming that they had left, 
He was just going to go ahead and take his life so he didn't have to deal with someone else taking his life. And so when the jailer woke and saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. First truth that I mention is that we see the sovereignty of God within this activity. But second, I want us to see coincidental relationships. Coincidental meaning, now, I'm very much playing on words. Coincidence, I don't believe in coincidence because what? Truth one, God's sovereign. I'm using that intentionally because from our perspective and from Paul's perspective, it might look like this was a coincidence, meaning that Paul was never supposed to be in this jail to begin with. Paul was never supposed to be around this jailer. But through God's sovereign activity, he placed him right in contact with someone because God wanted to use Paul through that individual one relationship, this coincidental relationship, this spontaneous relationship, this is happenstance relationship, how, whatever word you want to use, that God was using that moment for what? For Paul being filled with the Spirit as he's living on mission to allow the kingdom of God to invade somebody else's life. I want to give some examples of this. Uh, um, I, I don't want to put uh, too many people on the spot. I, I met a gentleman just before service um, who had a story that sounds somewhat familiar. Some of y'all know the story. Uh, David John has shared this, and, and so, so I'm sharing it, not with permission, but he has shared it, so I guess it's okay for me to share it. If not, David John, throw something at me right now and tell me not to share this story. But, but David John's story is that he had a fire come into his apartment, and through that fire, God sovereignly placed people in this church in his life to love on him and to care for him. And just uh, before service, I met another gentleman who likewise had a fire about five, six years ago. And because of that fire, was, mis- was not living in his home at that time and was living somewhere closer to where New Hope was doing a basketball camp or something. And because of that, that happenstance that God intersects stories in order for them to get connected. And now he's even back worshiping with his wife and just here today. And I'm not going to point him out, but he's in the room. And so I'm sharing his story. And, but the point is, I, I give those two stories because I can't help but to notice that here's two stories where that is that a fire takes place. Or in Paul's circumstance, he's put in prison where you look at this and go, this is not good. Like, what positive can come out of prison? What positive can come out of fire? What positive can come out of whatever circumstance? But I love that God is sovereignly working in what seems like just happenstance encounters through every detail of our lives for his kingdom to be advanced. I want us to get this picture that for us, when we are engaging our city with the love of Jesus... That when we think about relationships, another truth we're going to get to in a second is the importance of relationships that we have intimate relationships with. But I don't want us to miss that it is through Paul and these activities of God's sovereignty. He places him in a happenstance with a jailer. And what, what happens? The jailer comes in and sees men who have represented integrity, who have not fleed, and have actually, because they earned the respect of all the other prisoners, were able to keep the other prisoners from fleeing out of respect and love for this jailer. Why else would they stay in prison? I mean, listen to me. If I'm in prison, and I'm praying and singing, and an earthquake takes place, and all of a sudden my, my, my handcuffs and, my, and everything opens up, I'm going, 
God wants me to exit this prison right now. That's the conclusion I would come to, right? God wants me to walk out them doors. But, but listen to me. Paul understanding, for whatever reason, the scripture doesn't tell us exactly what's going on in his mind. But for whatever reason, Paul, was filled with the Holy Spirit, trusted the Spirit's prompting, he and Silas, and they kept all the other prisoners in. And the only reason I can think that they would do that, because they understood that someone's life depended upon them in that moment staying in prison. And don't get me wrong, the jailer quickly came to the understanding and the conclusion that they could have left, but they stayed for a reason. Now, we don't know what time the jailer went to bed. We do know that he was asleep. So, but at, we don't know. We know at midnight is when the earthquake happened. But Paul and Silas probably had been singing for hours. So you got this jailer and you got these other prisoners who are watching Paul and Silas in their negative circumstance, praise and worship God. And so when all this takes place and the jailer comes in and sees that Paul and Silas, out of fear and love for God, have protected his life, what do they do? They engaged him with God's love, this sacrificial love where they said, hey, you know what? We'll stay in prison for the sake of your life. We will lay our lives down for the sake of your life. And it was through that act of love that the jailer comes in and is in fear and in all of what they have done. And then he says this in verse 30. Then he brought them out. So then he brings them actually out of prison. He brings them out and says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? We never can bypass the the value of these circumstantial or these coincidental type encounters with people. I've told you all this before, but I'm, I'm more of a task person. My personality, I'm much more of a task person than a people person. Now, don't hear me wrong. I love you and I love people. But I, if I'm not careful, I'm in the busyness of my life and busyness of my day. I got, I got to get these tasks done. I got to get these tasks done that oftentimes I can just miss people. Oftentimes I can just be in a hurry to get something done for the church because it's better for people that I actually miss people along the way. This is something my personality struggles with. And so I remember, I'm going to give two stories to kind of bring this thought together. I remember in eighth grade that uh, the school I was at, we had assigned lunch tables. And so we had to sit at this one lunch table. And I used to sit at that end down there with my friends. But I remember I was eighth grade, and our student ministry in our church was doing a 40-day fast together as a church. Now, um, I was not doing fasting from food in eighth grade. And so what I decided to do, I will fast from eating with my friends and I will go to the other end of the table, which is pretty much empty. No one sat down there. And I will eat my lunch while doing my devotional, because they gave us a 40-day devotional to go along with this fast for student ministry. And I'll sit down there, and I'll read my Bible, and I'll just spend that time. I'll, I'll sacrifice whatever. So I remember I was down there, and I began to notice that while I was sitting down there, there's these three uh, classmates of mine that I never talked to. Okay, I, I, Like many teenagers, and even, unfortunately, as adults, we can tend to live cliquish lives. And me as an eighth grader, still loving Jesus, was still immature, and I was cliquish, and I never talked to these three, three, these three guys. And so as I'm sitting there, I begin to notice that two of them would always talk to one another and turn around and talk to people at the other table. But there's this one guy, and I don't remember his name, uh, was sitting two or three seats over, and he never talked to anybody. No one ever talked to him. He just sat there. And so for weeks, he and I just sat there quiet. And, and so for three or four days in a row, I felt the Holy Spirit telling me, I want you to share the gospel with him. I want you to share the gospel with him. And so I said, okay. And so one day, I scoot over, and I say his name. And in about 45 seconds, I, who knows what I said, 
but I, I, I describe it. I, I was so nervous. I was so nervous. Right? Right? I, I just kind of threw up the message of God's love, if you will, on him. Um, and he looked at me, and I ended with, do you want to give your life to Jesus? And he looked at me and said, no, I'm okay, man. And, just, and so I just went, okay, cool, 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 cool. And I was just like, Lord, I did it. I don't know what else to do. I don't know what to do. Um, I, I, I eventually, um, gra- eighth grade, went into ninth grade, went to a different school. And actually, I transferred to a different high school in ninth grade, meaning uh, that most of my friends from middle school, I, I didn't know any of them. I didn't see any of them in high school. And so I don't remember, honestly, I don't remember having another conversation with this, with this classmate of mine. And so I'm in ninth grade, and I'm in another school, and I, I know exactly where I was in the building. I'm walking down the hall in, my eighth grade, or in ninth grade, and this, this classmate walks up to me. I didn't even know we went to the same high school. I have not seen him in a year. He walks up to me. It was on Monday, and he stops me, and he says, hey, man, I just want to tell you something. This past Saturday, I went to something, 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 and I gave my life to Jesus, and I just wanted you to know because I know you care. And I, I, I remember something at that moment, because I, I need you to know something. As an eighth grader, I, was, I, I, knew, I knew in my bones the Lord was asking me to be faithful in sharing the gospel with him. And then for the next year, because he had not received Jesus, I struggled with going, God, why? You asked me to share the gospel, and he didn't give his life to Jesus. And so I began to go, well, if, if I'm, if I'm going to constantly get rejected, then I'm just going to keep my mouth quiet. And, and as an eighth grader, I just kind of began to shut in uh, myself and my thoughts and all these things. And, I, and from that time that I shared the gospel with him to the time that he told me that he had given his life to Jesus, I had not shared the gospel with anybody else because I was, I was, I was really mad at God. And in that moment, the Lord spoke it's just into me, it just understanding the sovereignty that he's working in people's lives and that I never know what my role is in other people's lives and what God's doing in their lives. Meaning that these individual one-time conversations with people, we can't look at them as not important. We can't look at them and go, these are interruptions to my day. But can we look at them with a great value? I want to give this last uh, illustration. In, uh, some of you saw this. Uh, I, I guess I, I put it on. So I never write on social media, but this was something I put on social media. Friday, I was um, on the Upper West Side, and I was there, and I was in a coffee shop, and I walk into a coffee shop, and I stand next to Ben Stiller, right? I stand next to Ben Stiller, and I had this moment where just like, and then I begin to look at other people, and I realize nobody cares. Like, nobody's talking to him, so I'm like, this can't be him. This can't be him, right? And then he turns around, and, and, and he's right there. I'm like, this is clearly Ben Stiller. And I go, he's a little shorter than I thought. And then he looks on TV. <laughs> that was the random thought that went through my head. And then, but you got to understand the circumstances. So I was, um, I was, uh, uh, in, I was, I was at First Baptist in the city of New York, and the coffee shop's right across the street from there. I was there because I had some friends uh, that were meeting someone there, and so I took them, and I was just studying out of the church, actually, for this sermon. I'm studying out of the church for this sermon, and they didn't have coffee in the church, and I needed coffee. It was about 2 o'clock in the afternoon, and so I, I was hurry. I was, I was in a hurry. But I came into the coffee shop, and I remember thinking, well, one, I didn't talk to him because I wasn't going to bother him. But I remember thinking, I would drop whatever I'm doing if he was willing to talk to me. Like, I was busy. I had a lot going on. And I, re- I was spent really yes- or yes- Friday and Saturday going, man, how cool it would have been if we could just have a conversation. I didn't talk to him. I didn't, I didn't even bother him. But I was like, how cool it would have been to have a conversation. And I'm telling you, just deep in my spirit, the Lord goes, Jonathan, from my perspective, Ben Stiller's no more special than anybody else. 
but you were willing to drop whatever to have a conversation with him, but why aren't you willing to do that with other people? And I just need you to know that the Lord, I, I mean, just used that in my life to teach me a lesson I've already had to learn, but to relearn that uh, we've got to remember that these coincidental relationships are never coincidental. That God, you never know who God's going to put in our life on the subway. He's going to put him right up against us on the subway. And you, you know, you're like breathing the same air. And you know, it's never a coincidence. And so let us see as we engage the city of God that, uh, that, uh, or engage our city with the love of Jesus, one relationship at a time, that Paul, as he was engaging the city, this relationship that God had sovereignly brought about, God used to advance his kingdom. And so he asked this question, what must I do to be saved? And Paul says this in Acts 16, 31. He says this. And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Now, we need to talk about something theologically here for a second. Scripture does not teach that if one person in a home gives their life to Jesus, that everybody else is automatically redeemed by Jesus. Scripture does not teach that. That every individual person is responsible to surrendering to Jesus in faith. So, so Luke, as he writes this, is summarizing this important principle that I want us to get. Is that when someone gives their life to Jesus, that that person, just like within any other circumstance, that people have influence over people they have relationships with. And so what happens? And they spoke the word, verse 32, and they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. So because of this coincidental relationship, if you will, this happenstance encounter between Paul and this jailer, the gospel was able to be preached to not just the jailer, but to the relationships that the jailer had influence over. And so they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were with him in the house, and he took them to the same hour, or excuse me, he took them the same hour of, that, of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into the house and set food before him, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. I want us to see this, and here's the reason why I chose this passage, is because we see two very important and two types of relationships. We see the coincidental relationship, and then we see this personal, intimate relationship. That we see Paul, just through happenstance, encounter someone with the love of Jesus, use that point of contact for the sake of explaining the gospel, but then also understanding that it's through influence is the greatest way our relationships can be used for the sake of the gospel. It's through these, the people that we know, meaning, listen to me, is when we talk about preaching the gospel, when we talk about communicating the gospel, this is why it's so important that we all see as believers in Jesus that we're all responsible to communicate the gospel to other people. Why? Because you know people that I don't know. And if it's up to me only to preach the gospel, then there's so many people who will never hear the gospel and understanding that God has sovereignly placed you in the work that you're in, in the home that you're in, in the neighborhood that you're in, because you are the means in which the kingdom of God is lived out and communicated in that exact place. I need you to see that we, as uh, in our church, we believe in what we call the priesthood of believers, which means that every believer in Jesus has the same ability to come straight to Jesus, meaning you don't have to go through a priest. You can go straight to Jesus because Jesus is the high priest, but that also means we have the same responsibility to communicate the gospel to everyone. 
that we all have that same responsibility. And I want you to see that as we engage our city with the love of Jesus, one relationship at a time, it's actually through relationships that the gospel is able to be multiplied. Every relationship is important. I want to use an illustration. I'm going to kind of use this illustration um, kind of on the spot. Um, can I'm going to ask uh, Renee and Reggie to come back up. Okay, Renee and Reggie, come back up. And I'm going to ask Dion to come join me as well. Come here, Dion. I'm not going to embarrass you, I promise. I'm not going to embarrass you. I want us to see the importance of relationships when it comes um, to the kingdom of God and to discipleship and to some of those things. Let me give a quick statistic. Rodney Stark and the Rise of Christianity. Rodney Stark is a sociology uh, professor uh, at the University of Washington in comparative religion, sociology and comparative religion. And what he does is he compares how, and he wrote a book on the rise of Christianity on how did these ragtag group of disciples um, uh, out of Jerusalem, uh, create and be a part of starting a religion that has impacted the world such the way. So he's curious to how does something so small have such a large impact? And so as he talks about the power of multiplication, which I'm going to get to this illustration, that idea of illustration and multiplication in a second. But in his book, he talks about um, um, uh, Mormonism uh, and how it is growing. Mormonism is one of the fastest growing religions in the world because it's growing at a 40% uh, growth rate per decade. And, and here's what he, uh, he gives a statistic that he's learned as the Mormons, as they communicate the gospel and they speak and, and all these things, that when they have an encounter, when they, whether they share the gospel or they, whether they not, or share their message, whether they knock on a door, whatever it may be, that they have random, random, they don't know the person they're talking to. Statistically, they keep hard statistics that one out of a thousand contacts is converted to Mormonism. One out of a thousand. But when they share their message through a relationship of someone they personally know or someone who knows another Mormon, that the conversion rate is nearly 50%, one out of two. Why? Because of the importance of relationships and influence and realizing how relationships impact our communication of the gospel. I want to get this. I said to, um, two weeks ago when we were talking about this idea of reaching 24,000 people, how, what if we have two ways to, to go about that? The first way is we just try to shove all these people into our one building, and we said if we reach 1%, that we would have to take over the U.S. Open Stadium, and it seats 24,000 people, and we would just kind of use this attractional idea. But I want to give a picture of relationships and the, and the power of relationships for a second. So imagine um, that I meet these three gentlemen, and these three gentlemen, um, they don't know Jesus, but I share the gospel with these three gentlemen, and they give their lives to Jesus, and I spend uh, a year, let's just say a year, discipling them and loving on them and teaching them how to walk with Jesus. And then I faithfully communicate what I'm trying to communicate here is that they're responsible to share the gospel also. Like, I'm not the only one responsible to share the gospel. They're responsible to share the gospel. And so they, they, they're ready, and they go out, and let's say they go share the gospel, and they each meet three other uh, cool-looking dudes like these guys were, and they reach these, they meet three dudes, and they share the gospel with them, and they come to know Jesus, all right? So here's what I want to do. Uh, all the gentlemen in the room, you're, you're probably going to get asked to move in a second, so just go along with this illustration. I'm going to pick on all of you. I want you three to go grab three men and bring them up here. Will you do that? 
I'm not going to ask anybody to talk, so don't be, you're just going to stand here. You're just going to stand here for a second. Grab three gentlemen and bring them with you. Three gentlemen, bring them with us. We got some math majors. How many, how many guys should be up here at this point in time? Okay. I didn't grab anybody else, so. Okay. So 12 plus myself. All right. Is that right? Okay. Same thing happens. All right. Same thing happens. And these gentlemen go out and all faithfully share the gospel. And they go grab three more guys. Go right. It's kind of the point. So can we, can, would, would all the men just be willing to, to kind of come stand up this way? Would you be willing to do that? I know some of you, this is your first time here. We love you. And if you're embarrassed by this, I'm so sorry. I'm not asking you to do anything. I don't usually put people on the spot. But I want to see something. It took, it took how many generations how many generations? Four, essentially. Do you think there's something to 2 Timothy 2 2 and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will teach others also? What happens? Paul to Timothy, faithful men to others. Within four generations, Paul, what was Paul saying? That within four generations, if you reach out to your sphere of influence, you can communicate, share the gospel, and disciple every person in your sphere of influence within four generations. Really, realizing the sphere of influence, close household, close friends, not everybody you know. We're not like Pastor Andy who knows everybody. Pastor Andy knows everybody. We, we live in a millions of people, and somehow Andy knows everybody, right? So I'm not talking about acquaintances. I'm talking about people you live life with. I want to give this illustration. Let's say, um, and men, why don't you go ahead and grab a seat? Go grab a seat. We were like, what was the point of that? I wanted to do the best I can to give a visual of this, what I'm about to say. There are currently just over seven and a half billion people in the world. Let's say that God has, um, I, let's say I'm the, I am the only believer in seven and a half million people, or seven and a half billion people, the only believer, and, Jesus, and God entrusts the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ to me, and he says, hey, your job is to what? Go make disciples of all nations. I have two ways to go about that. Way one, Jesus says, I'm going to anoint you with the ability to preach the gospel, and every single day you're going to preach the gospel, and a thousand people are going to come to know Jesus. A thousand people, all right? How many people is that a year? 365,000 people a year. That's incredible. That's the quickest church plant you'd ever seen, right? This is, this is super fast. This is incredible. And so this sounds great. My question is, how long does it take to reach over seven and a half billion people at 365,000 people a year. Anybody know? Anybody know? Nearly 20,000 years. You go, hold on a second, we're in year 2019. 20,000 years. There's got to be a better way. Same scenario, seven and a half billion people, I'm the only believer. And year one, I just get one guy, not three, one. And I share the gospel with one other person, and I disciple that person, and I teach them to not just know about Jesus, but to walk with Jesus and to be faithful to serve him. So at the end of year one, there are two of us, and then we do the same thing, year two. Then there's four of us, and then do the same thing, then there's what? Eight of us, 16, 32, 
64, 128, 256, 512? We'll stop there. How long does it take to reach 7.5 billion people when what? You multiply. See the difference? Scenario one, addition. Big addition, right? This is awesome. But if we just simply one person a year to start with and you double that, it takes 33 years to reach 7.5 billion people. Actually, it takes 33 years to reach 8.4 billion people. 33 years. What am I trying to tell you? is that it's through the individual relationships that the gospel is multiplied to the nations. It's the reason why you've heard me and will continue to talk about the importance of not us. Listen to me. The kingdom of God runs on the rails of relationships. The kingdom of God runs through these individual relationships that we have, these coincidental relationships and the people that we have influence over. But listen to me. We, for us, when we think about church and we think about the kingdom of God, even if we reach 365,000 people a year, that would be incredible. There's no building that could hold us in New York City. But if we don't multiply, then we'll never see the kingdom reach ultimately the ends. Matthew 24, 14, once the gospel's preached to all nations, then the end will come. And I need you to know that I'm looking forward for Jesus to call me home. I'm looking forward to the end to come. Why? Because I am sick and tired of brokenness. In my life and the world around me, I want Jesus to restore all things. But he says that we, that'll happen only once the gospel's been preached to all nations. And so for our goal is to see the gospel preached, then we got to multiply. Our mission is not to figure out how we can put more people in a room. Our mission is how do we multiply more people out? How do we multiply community groups? How do we multiply churches? Why? Because 33 years. It's basic math, guys. And so that's why you need to hear me say, this is why we engage our city, the masses of our city, one relationship at a time. Because it's through every individual relationship that the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God runs on the rails of relationships. So I need you to see how important you are to the kingdom of God. And how important you are to seeing God move in this city. Listen to me, you're sitting in your seat going, well... Um, I, I'm not a pastor, I'm not a preacher, I haven't been to seminary, I don't know these things, I haven't, this, 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 but listen to me, you have the most important thing, you want to know what that is? Two things, one, you have the Holy Spirit living in you, and two, you have relationships with people that I don't have. I can have all the information in the world, but I can't lead someone to Christ that I don't know. You need to get to understand the most important thing you have is Jesus and relationships. And so when we talk about relationships, this is why it's important. This is why it's important that one, we have a relationship with Jesus, we live surrendered to the Lordship of Christ. This is why it's important that we live surrounded by a community of faith. Because listen, we cannot live the Christian life on our own. The enemy is difficult. The enemy attacks us. We need other people that we can lock arms with as we live for Jesus. So you need to live surrounded, but you need to live sent. And this happens in community groups. This is why community groups are important for us. Is because you can lock arms with people. You live, work, and play with the people in your community group. You lock arms and you live on mission, understanding that we're going to leverage, not this time just for a Bible study. Yes, the absolutely, and a time to pray for one another, absolutely. But we're going to leverage this time as an, a place that we can, use, we can use our relationships to invite people into seeing the kingdom of God, into seeing the love of Jesus. We can invite them in to belonging with us. I need us to see the importance of relationships. And so I want to encourage you that you would see the value you have in the kingdom of God, the value you have in this vision that God has given us. 
And I want us to see why community groups are important. Why as we go and live out there that we're locking arms with other people. As is our custom, the second Sunday of every month, we take the Lord's Supper together. And so we're going to take the Lord's Supper together at this time. And I transition as we think about the Lord's Supper as a meal. As we think about the Lord's Supper, because it was a meal and it is a meal that we celebrate what Jesus has done for us. But if you're in here and you're maybe new to Christianity or you're new to Jesus and whatever it, it may be, and I want you to understand that the most important relationship in your life, sorry, the most important relationship in your life is first and foremost your relationship with Jesus. I want you to see something. You all have a relationship to Jesus in one way. Either you don't know him, meaning you don't have a relationship, but you have a, you have a relationship status with Jesus, if we can use the Facebook term. You have a relationship status, and, but I, I need to see that, that I pray that you would see that your relationship with Jesus should be one of surrender and lordship to him because he is sovereign, he is king of kings, and he is lord of lords. And he, out of love for you, gave his life for you. That he didn't just decide to stay back away from us, but he came and lived with us, God with us. He what? He stepped into relationship with his creation in order to show the love that he has for his creation. And so when we take the Lord's Supper it's a tradition that we do that Jesus instituted, and he's told us as the church to do this, because what? The bread or the cracker that we're going to take represents his body when he died on the cross for us to, to forgive us of our sins. And, and the juice represents his blood that was shed for us. And so we do this as a constant reminder of what he has done for us and out of worship to him. And so if you're not a follower of Jesus, I want to encourage you not to participate. This is specific for believers. Don't feel pressure. Just... Just allow the plate to pass. But for all believers in the room, I want to encourage you to participate. And I want to encourage you to, to take and remember what he has done uh, for us. Scripture tells us in 1 Corinthians that before we take the, the, the table of the Lord's Supper together, that we must examine our lives. And so first, I want to, take, I want to ask you and encourage you just to bow your heads, just so you can focus. Bow your heads, close your eyes, and just ask the Holy Spirit, is there anything in my life? That, that I need to confess of, that I need to become pure before you. He, I want us to see the importance of relationships. He actually says that if there is a relationship in your life that is broken and you haven't done everything you can to mend it, that before you take it the Lord's Supper, go mend it. I want us to see that the one thing that Jesus tells us to do, to make sure we do before we come to the Lord's Supper is what? Check on the health of our relationships. Why? Because relationships are the rails that the kingdom of God runs on. And so if our relationships with other people are broken, then it's hard for us to be a witness and it's hard for us to honor him and some of those things. There's more to that, but I want us to see that if, if you if were thinking about relationships, is there any relationship that you need to just ask for forgiveness of or offer forgiveness to? But then he encourages us that we would examine if there's any sin between us and God, our relationship with God, how are we there? If there's any sin we need to confess, would you confess it? And if you're unwilling to confess sin, then I encourage you not to take it to the Lord's Supper. Because when you take it to the Lord's Supper, what you're saying is you confess your sin and you give it all to Jesus. And if you take of the Lord's Supper without confessing sin, 
then you're being disrespectful for what God has done. So I encourage you not to do this lightly, but with wholeheartedly, would you examine your life? I'm going to pray for the bread. As I mentioned, that the, the cracker, the bread represents Jesus. On the night that he was betrayed, he took it and he broke it. And he said, this is my body that is for you. Take and eat of it in remembrance of me. And so I want to pray a blessing over the, over the bread. And, and then we'll, we'll take and we'll eat together. Jesus, we thank you for tonight. We thank you for your goodness and your mercy. Jesus, I pray that we would be a people that advance your kingdom for your glory. Father, I pray if there's anybody in here that does not have a relationship with you, that, that they would see that you're calling them to you, that they would, their hearts would surrender to you, that they would confess their sin, that they would see that apart from forgiveness of their sins, that they're under your holy and just wrath, but through the confession of sin, there is life, there is eternal life, there is forgiveness, only because of you, Jesus. So as pray over this bread, that as we eat it, we are being reminded that you died so that we can have the forgiveness of our sins. So I pray blessings over this bread now. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. The deacons at this time are going to pass the bread.